Paul says this, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds him to her. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, <coughs> deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. For though I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, 
but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Please have a seat, and I very much appreciate if you have that passage on your lap, just so you can check the do's and the do nots and the don'ts. Um, it was a long time since I did GCSEs. Some of our uh, friends here today have just got through the last of them and are waiting for results. It's going to be a long summer. It's a great relief to get through it, but it's been a long time since I did GCSEs, and one of my least favourite subjects was English, because I found reading very hard until I was about 18, then I got a new appetite for it. One of the key texts I had to read was this book that's going to come up on the screen, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's a very interesting book. It's a very, very clever book written by Mr. Robert Louis Stevenson. He was a Scot. There's a few good Scots. He was a Scot. He was the son of a Presbyterian minister, and he had a great insight into human nature. And this book, if you read it at one level, is a great and an interesting story. At another level, it tells very cleverly what Romans 7 is really describing. It talks about the fights that we have in our hearts. It talks about the fight we have in our hearts and souls. You know the story, but in case you've forgotten, let me remind you of it. There is Dr. Jekyll and there is Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll, Robert Louis Stevenson says, has a realisation of this incongruous compound in his heart. Two parts that don't go together, <laughs> namely good and evil. He has conscience and he has coveting in his spirit. He has a good side and he has a dark side and it troubled him deeply and profoundly. He uh, had this deep evil side that he felt was holding his good side back. And so as a doctor and as a conjurer, he thought, I know what to do. I will make for myself a potion. And this potion will release my dark side to behave as it wants at night time and in the daytime I can be good. So he took the potion, and I wouldn't say all hell broke loose, but when it was night time, his dark side truly became very, very dark. This uh, potion had immense power to release the dark side of his heart without any constriction. It uh, freed his good side to achieve its goals in the daytime, but all too quickly, Dr. Jekyll found out that the bad side was overpowering the good side and what to be done. There was lots of things that were happening that to his shock revealed that he was far more evil than he ever thought before. The good side was being overpowered by the evil side. He was starting to kill people and getting away with it. The police couldn't catch him. What was he to do? It was not a dualistic understanding of personality where good versus evil and maybe the good will overpower the evil or the evil will overpower the good. Not like Star Wars. The evil was clearly overpowering the good in his heart. And he says, this braced me and it delighted me like wine. I thought my uh, Mr. Hyde side, my evil side, was malign. But every act... And every thought that I had centred on myself, says Robert Louis Stevenson. Now, do you know why 
Dr. Jekyll's evil side, Mr. Hyde was called Mr. Hyde, Edward Hyde. He was called Mr. Hyde because he was hideous, because he was ghastly and horrible and evil. But also Mr. Hyde was called Mr. Hyde because he was hidden. The evil side was hidden by some good in his experience. But when he took the potion, out came the evil, like an explosion. And he was getting away with terrible, terrible things, including murder. The Apostle Paul says something very similar but different in Romans chapter 7. In Romans 7, if you listened in carefully to this tricky passages, with lots of do's and do's and don'ts and don'ts, so it sounds like a bit of a tune, the Apostle Paul is wrestling with human nature and the law. Did you notice in the 14 sentences, 35 times you read one of these words? You can read the word law, or you read written code, or you read commandment. The whole passage is a study of human nature, but not by itself. It's a study with human nature in relation to God's law. How do we respond to God's commandments? Verse 7 poses the question, what do we do with these commandments that Paul has been telling us about through the opening chapters of the book of Romans? In our hearts, we have this heart disease and we cannot cure ourselves. We cannot get to God by our own effort. So what about the law? How will we rescue ourselves? We can't. So what has God done? He sent Jesus, but now our righteousness from God has been revealed. We're in the dock, but Jesus has rescued us. We're in the dock, we're guilty, we're completely hopeless and hapless, but God has sent his son to rescue us. And now, in Romans chapter 7, Paul goes back, he tracks back and says, so what about the law? Is it evil? And Paul says, no. But there is a battle in our hearts and I want to look here, uh, there's a battle that you cannot win. But there's also a battle you can't lose, we'll see that in a minute. And then how do you make the transition between the two? Paul says, there is a battle in my heart and in our hearts that we can never win. It's there in sentence 7 to 13, 7 to 13. There's a battle that you cannot win. There was Paul. Uh, blissfully unaware of the depth of depravity and sin and struggle in his own heart. He had no idea what he was really capable of, just like Mr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He had no idea, and then he took a potion, verse 7, that was called the law. He became aware of God's commandments, and then he had this moment of realisation to see how he saw his capacity for evil in 3D. Look at sentence 7. He knew and understood the commandments in a general way, but then the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, came to him in a very 3D real way. It pressed upon him and it burst his balloon of self-righteousness and respectability. Whether you know the 10 commandments or not, everybody around the world has a common set of values, a moral code. Not like the pirate's code in Pirates of the Caribbean. This is the moral code. We believe in justice, we believe in generosity, we believe that people should keep their word. We believe that people deserve to be treated with honesty and respect. Whether you're a religious person, whether you're a non-religious person, whether you follow one of the mainline religions of the world or you have your own spiritual understanding of who God is, those are commonly held moral codes. Justice, honesty, keeping our word, caring for other people. And when you look at that code, you can say, well, I measure up pretty well. 
And Paul thought that too. He was a religious man. And he measured up very well to God's, well, to his own standards, but not to God's. Because then he became aware, verse 7, of the Ten Commandments in a very real personal way. God came close to him. And then, like a nuclear missile you hold on your shoulder, his religiosity was exploded. His poverty of spirit was exploded. He kind of tracked through the Ten Commandments as he came to understand them as God came close to him. And he could have said, I don't commit adultery. Well, I don't steal. I take care, for my, take care of my parents. I, I listen to what they say. But then the Tenth Commandment, Paul says in his own experience, then God came close, verse 7. Verse 9 says, I was alive until the law came, and then it killed me. It slew me like a, a kind of an old dragon slayer. I thought I was okay, but then God showed me the Tenth Commandment, and then it slew me, it killed me. How? Two ways. It killed him in two ways. He understood for the first time that in his heart he was coveting other stuff. Look at verse 13. Through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Through the commandment of coveting, I realised how sinful I really was. I realised that I thought I measured up and then I was, I was just rammed into the floor by God's holy standards. I saw how utterly sinful I was, just like Mr. Hyde coming out of Mr. Jekyll's soul and heart. He thought he was a good, respectable doctor, but then he saw his dark side. So too the Apostle Paul thought he was respectable, and then the law came close. He saw something of who God was, and then he saw how covetous he really was. He saw there's a Mr. Hyde down there in my heart. That's the first thing. But then the second thing, look at verse 8. The second thing, but sin. Sin's described as a power in this sentence. Sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me, it kind of grew in me, every kind of covetous desire. Sin kind of got a fresh pair of legs at this point, and it started to grow and started to multiply. Coveting doesn't just mean you want something. It means you want something so much that you'll do anything to get it. And when Paul understood that second deeper level, he was rammed into the ground. It's when you want anything more than God, that's coveting. When Paul grasped that, he realised he didn't have a chance or a hope. You can be coveting of a bunch of stuff. You could say, uh, I need money to live, that's true. But then you can go deeper and say, I need money to be a person I want to be. You want to be in a relationship and you say, I want someone to love me. That's a human desire. It's a good desire. But then it can become a ruling thing where you start to sleep around. I want pleasure. We all want to enjoy pleasure. God's given us our desires. But when pleasure becomes a ruling, controlling thing, when it's a good thing becomes a bad thing, it becomes a ruling thing. And Paul is saying, God came close to me and I realised that I hadn't understood these Ten Commandments at all. I hadn't understood this last one at all. No matter how much you feed whatever the desire is, it's like a black hole. You can just pump in all your resources, all your time and all your energy, and it will never satisfy. Paul is saying that's the essence of what it means to turn your back on God. That's the essence of what it means to covet, to want something more than you want God, for whom you're made. 
why do you get worried? Why do I get afraid of stuff? Because I have to have something. I want approval. I'm an approval junkie. But I admit to you that I am. I want you to think I preach well. I want you to think that I live well. I want you to think that I bring up my kids well. And so I, I'm harsh sometimes to them. I'm not always kind in how I speak towards them. And you do that stuff too. Because we all want something. And a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. And Paul, for the first time, got that. He says, verse 8, I had all these desires that I didn't even know I had when I saw the stand. And it's like saying, keep off the grass. I have no problem with keeping off the grass until you say, keep off the grass. I have, well, I kind of have some problems keeping it at 30. But when I see 20, you think, forget it. There's no way I'm going to stay at 20. I've got somewhere to go. It's normally Audi. Why do I get worried? Why do I get anxious? Because there's something I want, and you want it too. Paul says, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it's a coveting thing. It's a controlling thing. And verse 9 says, when I saw that, it slay me. It cut me down. It took my legs away. I thought I could stand up being uh, religious and being self-satisfied in my own standing. I'm a good guy, says Paul. But when the law showed me that I struggled with covetousness, it took my religious knees away. I was absolutely dead in the water. I was legally condemned. It's the war... It's the war you can't win. When the gospel comes to you, that's what you see. You're dead in the water in our own religious clothes. Even what you do with good things, well, they become bad things when you see God's perfect and holy standard. It's a battle you can't win. That's verses uh, 7 to 13. But then secondarily, here's the battle you can't lose. Here's the battle you can't lose. Look at verses 14 to 25. Now, this is where all the do's and the do-nots, and it all gets a little bit tongue-twisting to say. So I'm going to cheat and not repeat it and summarise what it says by stealing another verse that Paul summarises in a book called Galatians. He says this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. In other words, there is a conflict in your heart. It's not just your children if you have them in your home. There's a conflict inside, and it's a war you cannot win by yourself. But Robert Louis Stevenson got it wrong. If you know Jesus, you transition from a war you cannot win to a war you cannot lose. That's what these sentences say. In every Christian heart, it's no longer a Jekyll and Hyde. You have a new identity. It's not a split personality. You're not kind of bifocal in your thinking and in your looking at the horizon. You know who you are. You're not divided in your heart anymore. You still struggle. You still battle. You're still not in peace. There's still a war to be fought. But you're a new person in Jesus. The gospel comes to you and it says that. The first thing in Christianity explores that we hear is we're in a mess. We're rebels against a God who loves us and for whom we made. And for some people, that's a hard truth to hear. It's a painful truth to hear. But it's a true truth that we need to hear. But then, having heard the bad news, comes the great and the good news. Although we're in a mess that we cannot rescue ourselves, God is a God who forgives and loves and has sent his son whose name is Jesus. And it's a gospel of grace that it's not about your performance. It's not about how good you are. It's not about what you've not done and what you have done. 
not about how much money you've given or the books you've read. It's not about the places you've been to or the beds you haven't slept in or the bed you have slept in. It's about the performance of Jesus Christ who loves you and is willing to rescue you. That's the gospel, a heavenly rescue mission. Jesus is the ultimate member of the SAS heavenly core. And the minute you get that that comes into your heart, you see, although you struggle, you're in a battle you will no longer lose. It's a battle you have won in Jesus. And that changes your attitude to the law. Remember the question, verse 7, is the law sinful? No way! Verse 22, look at the difference it's made to Paul. Paul says, in my inner being, the real me delights in the law of God. There's another power that pulls me away. But that's not me anymore. I'm a changed person because of Jesus. His spirit's in my heart. It's not about me. Remember Mr. Hyde? He was consumed with himself. He was self-centred. He was coveting. He was evil. He was dark. Dr. Jekyll didn't realise how bad he really was. But think of it in this way, Christian friend. Think of who you used to be before Jesus broke into your life, before he rescued you. I don't know what you did. You look kind of respectable. But think of the people you slept with. Think of the drugs you may have taken. Think of the amount of alcohol you consumed. Think of how many times you clicked on pornography or you clicked on gambling on the internet and it kind of hooked you in. Were you to go back and try any one of those things, overeating, undereating, whatever it may be, were you to go back now as a Christian to those things, they would not satisfy you the way they once did. Why? Because God has changed your cake better. You're not that person anymore. You've been transformed in Jesus. Romans has said, you died in Jesus. Now you're alive in Jesus. God has given you new hearts, new passions, new taste buds that no longer satisfies. You're not Jekyll and Hyde. You're a new person in Jesus Christ. You used to be in a battle you can't win, but now you're in a battle you can't lose. And what I want to do just to finish up is spend some time to say, well, how does that happen? That sounds too good to be true. Sounds like a clean slate. Sounds like a fresh start. It is. And to understand it, we need to look at verses 1 to 7. 1 to 7 of chapter 7. Paul is rescuing, or wrestling rather, with the issue of the law. Is the law evil? No. Then how do we relate to the law? Paul said, God has transformed my heart. He's given me new taste buds. So now rather than being... Um, burdened by the law, I love it, I delight in it, I want to obey the one who gave it and who spoke it. Why? Well, we need to understand marriage. Look carefully at sentence 1, 2 and 3. Sentence 1, 2 and 3 of chapter 7, he's saying, if you're married and your spouse dies, you can remarry. Okay, Paul, I understand you so far. And then verse 4, sentence 4, he says, this is why I'm talking about marriage. Verse 4, so you must die to the law and belong to another person. Don't be married to the law. Don't think that by obeying the law, you can look good to God, because you can't. That's what he explains in sentence 7 to 13. Don't think that by being married to the law, you can get approval, you can get acceptance, you can look respectable to God by your obedience. You can't, you never will. Let me take you back nearly 20 years to the day I got married. When you get married, it has an immense power to occupy your diary. Your wardrobe starts to change as your wife gets involved. Your house starts to have more flowers in it and it starts to smell better. That's the general experience of most men in the church. 
you start to have to look a different way and start to watch less football. Unless the World Cup's on, then you get a free pass. It's only once in every four years. But friends, no matter what has been said about you in the past, no matter you've had a good upbringing with parents who love you and approve of you, who've disciplined you and loved you well, who've been kind and generous to you, or if you've had parents that have been harsh and overbearing, who've not been kind, who've damaged and wounded you in ways that you cannot express, when you get married, your spouse has new and immense power to shape your identity, to shape your value, to shape your beliefs and belonging just by what they say about you. You get a fresh start when you get married. When your spouse looks at you and says, I love you, I know you, I know what you've done, but I cherish you, I will maybe say, obey you, I will honour you. Whether you're poor, whether you're rich, I'm going to love you. Whether you're sick or whether you're healthy, I'm going to love you. When you see the depth of those promises, that gives you a new identity, someone who knows you and who loves you, someone who cherishes you, someone that will be with you through thick and thin, that gives you a new identity. And that's what Jesus says through the Apostle Paul to you this morning. How do you get from a war you cannot win to a war you can never lose? You need to find someone new to love. Verse 4, you need to belong to another. You can't please God by your performance. You need to belong to another. You need to die to your thinking that thinks that you can please God by your obedience. You can't. Paul tried and he couldn't do it. You need to look straight in the eyes of someone who knows you, knows all the things you've done and who loves you even more than your spouse. Whether you're married, whether you want to be married, whether you've never been married, there is a husband who will love you perfectly and his name is Jesus. At the end of uh, Jekyll and Hyde, Mr. Jekyll was so so concerned that the evil was getting out of control, that Mr. Hyde is just overbearing and overpowering him. He says, what do I do? I'm killing people and getting away with it. This isn't right. I'm going to have to face justice one day, but I'm getting away with it right now. This is overbearing for me. And so he makes a decision to kill himself rather than face justice. He knew judgment was at hand, but he decided to end his life to take justice upon himself because all the things he was doing he knew were wrong. Kind of a metaphor for judgment, isn't it? No matter how far and how good you are at hiding, H-I-D-E, not H-Y-D-E, one day each one of us has to face the justice of God. We've seen that in chapters 1 to 3 of the book of Romans. One day judgment will come and there's no hope for us by ourselves. There's no hope for Mr. Jekyll. And so he took matters into his own hands. But then there is hope. Because the gospel is about hope. That's why it's good news. It's great news. Because as hideous as Mr. Hyde was to Dr. Jekyll, Jesus Christ, God himself, became hideous for you and me. Isaiah 52 and 53 say it like this. Jesus Christ was disfigured for you and me. His body was broken and ripped apart for you and me. There was blood going down his face for you and me. He was naked and ashamed for you and me. He was nailed to the cross for you and me. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was desired and 
despised and rejected by men, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. He was made hideous for you and for me. That's part of the rescue mission on the cross. Or Ephesians chapter 5, written by Paul as well, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for us to present himself pure and beautiful without spot and blemish. What's verses 1 to 7 saying? Friends, you will never get good enough for God by your own effort, by keeping the law. It just exposes the evil in your heart. That's what Paul experienced, and that's what you and I will experience if we try and get good enough for God. So where's the hope? The hope is getting remarried. Remarried to a saviour who is made hideous for us, who will love you like no other will. This is true. Jesus Christ is our new heavenly husband. He's given himself for you unconditionally, even when you were hideous. And he loves to make you beautiful. Only Jesus can do that, looking at your face and saying, I love you unconditionally. When you understand the gospel, whether it's Christianity Explored, whether it's through another means, whether it's slowly and gradually by looking at a Christian and hearing the good news of Jesus, that and that alone drives you to the ground. There's no way I can please a heavenly and holy God like this. But at the same time, it raises you up because you see Jesus who looks at you and who loves you unconditionally. And that gives you a new motive of gratitude and service and security like no other relationship can or ever will. And so Paul can say, there's now no judgment. There's now no condemnation for anyone who knows Jesus. That's what... uh, Mr. Hyde was so afraid of justice. That's what Mr. Uh, Jekyll was so concerned about, that he took justice into his own hands. He was afraid of being condemned. How about you? If you're a Christian, you can say, I'm not afraid of condemnation anymore because I have a new husband who looks me in the eye, knowing what I've done, and he loves me. No condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. And so you can give your money to the poor. You can listen to your parents. You can keep the law, but in a completely new motivational way. Because you know it won't get you to God, but you know the love and affection of a God who looks you in the eye and says, you are now in a war, if you know Jesus, that you will never lose, even though the battle goes on in your heart.